trauma trauma work is really important. The transition is done with a lot of the people who want to transition to begin with. This trauma is often a part of what's happened to them, and it's often a part of what sets up the hatred of the body because the person feels the body's betrayed them and led them into something which they realize is wrong and they wish hadn't happened. And one way of coping with that is to hate your body and then try and change it. That's a different body. And then you don't have to face it. Um, it's really a re that, that solution. That's what you're doing is a kind of reinforcement of association. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist. And I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm very honored to have a special guest by the name of Bob Withers. He is a Jungian psychoanalyst in Brighton, England. And I cannot emphasize to listeners enough how important this conversation is going to be. As my listeners know, I'm very interested in the topic of gender, specifically people who have been harmed by current beliefs and practices around gender. I call them survivors of gender malpractice or detransitioners as they're more commonly known. And uh, recently through one of my therapy networks, I received uh, an email from Bob here saying that he would like to connect over detransitioners. I wasn't familiar with his work. And I am so, so grateful <laughs> that Bob Withers has reached out to me because he has actually been working with detransitioners as a therapist since I was a child. So it's really an honor to be able to speak to him today. Bob Withers has done some incredible work. Um, he had a publication in 2015 that has been revoked for reasons that we'll talk about, but a more recent publication in 2020. His paper is called Transgender Medicalization. It's published in the Journal of Analytical Psychology, November 17th, 2020. It's an excellent piece. In fact, it's so great that if any listeners to the show would like to volunteer to read the piece on an episode of this podcast, I, I would love to, to hear it narrated. It's just that good. And honestly, there were so many excellent parts of his first article, the one that was revoked um, from 2015, that I, I wish I could read that out loud line for line as well. Um, so it's just such an honor to be speaking with someone today who has been aware of these issues since I was a child. I'm so excited to pick your brain. Thank you so much for being here, Bob. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. That's a very generous introduction. Well, I really want our listeners to understand how important your work is. I mean, anyone who's been following me and saying, oh, I'm so grateful that a therapist is speaking out about these issues. It's like, well, then we need to listen to Bob. Somehow I didn't know who he was until now. <laughs> but um, it, it's just shocking. And I have to say, as I was reading your articles, I was, I was just shocked by how much has been known about these issues for a long time. I mean, you were saying things years ago based on clinical experience that people are just now, you know, saying the same things. Um, so we have so much ground to cover. Um, 
I'm not quite sure where to begin. Um, I did want to ask you, I wasn't quite sure. Um, you talk about your patient who you use the pseudonym Chris for. He was the first uh, detransitioner that you ever met. It was the late 80s or was it early 90s? Early 90s. Yes. And and he doesn't okay. like being known as a detransitioner, by the way. He just says, well, okay. I reverted to my biological sex. So he, he prefers it just being called reverting. But uh, right. these days, and that's, we call it detransitioning today. But yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I use detransition because it's the word that everybody well, we understands. Well, we all do. Um, yeah. but, but it doesn't always suit people, right? Well, no, and also in this country, it's a horrible legal mess because if you've legally transitioned, then you have to reapply to legally detransition. So, and, and that's a very complicated and difficult process yeah. where it's actually just reverting to your biological sex because you realize you've made a mistake. And it is very different from a whole legal process, or should be. So before we dive into the, the meat of your work, you... Uh, and I have something in common. We've both gotten in trouble <laughs> with our licensing boards uh, for various things we've said and done around gender issues. And I just want our audience to understand for context that there are certain things that you are just not going to say because you don't want to create any patient confidentiality issues. Um, it's okay. And so we're going to speak in generalities about things, but that doesn't mean that you don't have very particular clinical experience that those generalities are being drawn from. Well, maybe we should talk about the the revocation of your uh, 2015 paper that was titled The Seventh Penis. It was published in the Journal of Analytical Psychology. Um, and I, I found that paper fascinating, but it's not publicly available anymore. So you um, said that there was something you wanted to explain about that process. Well, I suppose I, I do want to say something. Um, uh, I mean, that, that paper won a prize, it won the Michael Fordham Prize for that year, which is, um, that was the joint best paper published in the Jungian Journal that year. And it was recognized to be important because what I was trying to do, um, was encourage people to think psychologically about gender dysphoria and about working with trans people before reverting to surgical or medical treatment. And I was in particularly wanting to look at um, an obstacle that got in the way of a particular treatment, which I kind of put under the banner of um, Donald Winnicott's paper on hate in the couch transplant, which is that sometimes when we're working um, with people in certain conditions, with certain types of people, particularly more disturbed people, it sparks off elements in our countertransference, that's our reaction to them, which are not entirely rational or helpful or sensible. In fact, they may spark off hatred in the analyst. And Winnicott was writing his paper at a time when lobotomy was happening a lot. And he said that when we're working with people who are eligible to have lobotomies, we have to be really careful to be aware of the fact that we will end up hating our patients, which for therapists who consciously are trying to help their patients is a terrible thing to recognize. But what he said was that if we're not very careful and if we don't recognize that, if that hatred and that anxiety, which is really about our own mad or psychotic parts, if it's not conscious, then it tends to get unconsciously expressed. His day, he felt that the fear and hatred that we all feel towards mad or psychotic people because of our fear of our own inner madness 
is actually unconsciously expressed in the violence of the act of lobotomy. In other words, if we're not conscious of that hatred that can be evoked and is likely to be evoked, we will more than likely encourage the patient, in his case, towards a lobotomy. And really what I'm saying, the same thing applies both towards encouraging surgery and hormones before a trans patient has proper exploration of what it is that might be wanting to make them to transition. So there's this clinical failure that we as therapists, we can go through a shortcut of trying to support and affirm the patient in a way that denies the unconscious reaction that we may be having to the patient. In that paper, The Seventh Venus, I tried to write honestly about my unconscious hatred this particular patient who I can't now talk about because uh, this person, you know, is, um, I will refer to them as, as her because she, that's how she wants to be referred and I can respect that, brought a complaint against me um, for breaching confidentiality. That is, I didn't um, disclose anything personal that would identify the person, but they recognized themselves from one element of a very thickly disguised interaction. So I disguised everything apart from one crucial piece which I had to put in in order to explain my own counter-transference reaction. The patient recognized that, brought a complaint, and despite the fact that I'd sought advice from very well-known um, journal editors, very well-respected, and they told me that I could do what I was planning to do, provided I create a composite case which made use of elements from different cases it was um, fine for me to do that. And that was the received wisdom in the profession at the time. And I felt that I was making an argument in that paper which would help other therapists work better psychologically with trans patients. So as I say, they don't have to have so much um, that I rush into surgery and hormones. Um, but unfortunately, unbeknown to me, my own um, registering body, the UKCP, um, had changed its rules, and as I say, that the people who should have been in the know, the journal um, editors, didn't know, and they gave me bad advice. And so, in good faith, I published something which offended the patient. Which then I apologised to the patient for the offence, and tried to explain that my motive was a good one because I was actually trying to look at the obstacles in the way of psychotherapeutic treatment for people. But my professional association brought me to trial, a three-day trial in, um, was in the, uh, the headquarters of the General Pharmaceutical Council of Great Britain, and they found me guilty of breach of confidentiality, and as a result of that, the article was eventually withdrawn. As I say, I pleaded to just put the article out there with revisions which would have protected the patient from recognizing themselves, but um, as you know, this is a controversial subject, and um, I believe, and this is my belief, that um, and other people have the same experience and the same belief. I believe that sometimes these rules around confidentiality or practicing conversion therapy or any other thing which certain radical group trans activists can get hold of will be used to discredit and attempt to silence people like yourself and me with good intentions. All we're trying to do is safeguard and prevent harm where that's possible. But there are some people who have either an emotional vested interest in advocating transition for as many people as possible, or in the case of some of the pharmaceutical companies, they actually have a financial vested interest. And those are a lot of the people who are controlling organizations who put out 
standards of care uh, and often promote very bad, very unscientific research, which is touted as fact by these people who are actually really lobbyists. They're not people who look at the evidence. But that's kind of a um, slightly broader, more political conversation. But I think I can say that much without further breaching my expectations. Eventuality. The only thing I was going to say was that I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, male, stale and pale. So it's really nice to see somebody young and the young people like yourself involved in this as well, because it's so easy to listen. Male, to like stale them. and pale. Yeah, you know. <laughs> that that is the cl- the cleverest, most playful way I've ever heard anybody self deprecate for being a, a straight white man. <laughs> Male Stalin. Well, to ignore people like oh. we, don't, we don't count anymore, you know. So it's great to see people like you. No, your your work is is excellent, and and it's also shocking that these things have been known and ignored for such a long time. So I'm really glad that you brought up. Winnicott and countertransference. That was something that I loved about your articles is that you um, referenced Winnicott a lot and other, you know, psychological literature. And uh, and you talk about countertransference. Now, I want to say <laughs> there's someone on YouTube who left a not so nice comment about my use of the terms transference and countertransference. They felt like I, I guess they they felt like I was being too clinical and, and jargony. Um, and, and here's what I have to say to that. I already left a comment on it saying, look, for the breadth of audience and the breadth of guests that I have on this show, there's going to be moments that any listener is going to be like, what the heck are they talking about? And there's also going to be moments that any listener is going to say, duh, I already know that. Don't talk down to me. Right. So just bear with us. Yes, we're going to speak as clinicians to one another, we're going to use some clinical jargon. We're also going to break things down. Um, we don't mean anyone any offense. So when we talk about countertransference, for those who aren't familiar, it's a really important aspect of our work as therapists to examine our own thoughts, feelings, impulses, perceptions toward our clients for valuable material. You know, we there's a whole process of learning how to interpret our own thoughts and feelings and urges toward our client, what it says about us, what it says about them, what it says about unconscious reenactment in therapy, which is something that I thought you outlined so beautifully in your work. You talked about what could be playing out in the transference, countertransference relationship. And you essentially described that the incident that we're not going to further describe was an enactment of something uh, from the patient that had you handled your countertransference a little bit differently, you could have maybe learned from that. And you talk more broadly about um, issues of transference and countertransference that affect how we are conceptualizing of gender issues today and how we treat our patients. So you talk about the therapist's fear of our own psychotic states um, that get triggered by the you know, arguably the psychotic state of believing you are a different sex. Um, you talk about hatred in the countertransference, and I think that's so important because I don't think we have any, you know, positive models in the in the cultural discourse these days about hatred, right? Hate is one of those words that is, you know, I am repeatedly accused of hate and hate speech and bigotry. There's there's a lot of people get very up in arms about the idea of hate, but I don't I don't think we actually take the time to understand it. And I think that the psychoanalytic work that you do 
provides a valuable framework for understanding what we can learn from any feelings of, of hatred and how to become more conscious of them. Um, and you talk about how therapists can make a mistake in either of a couple ways when dealing with um, someone who wishes to have a medical transition. So you talk about the mistake of not challenging it enough, and you talk about the mistake of challenging it too much too quickly. Um, these are all really valuable countertransference issues, and I might look for some quotes uh, <laughs> from you in your articles to speak to them, if that's okay. But I think I've already just given you a lot to respond to right there. Yeah, the, there is quite a lot. Okay, so the, the first thing is, um, obviously, suffering from gender dysphoria in today's climate could be anything from somebody with a full-blown psychotic problem to somebody who is feeling uncomfortable in their body in a fairly common or ordinary way. You know, when we go through puberty um, and we start responding sexually to other people as adults, um, for some people, that can be a very disturbing process. You know, if you're um, responding in a homosexual way in your body, but you're in a homophobic environment, um, then you, you might end up hating your body and your body's responses. And one way of attempting to remedy that might be, unfortunately, you know, to fall into the discourse about transition and trans identity uh, as a way of trying to escape uh, the discomfort of your homosexual body response but, but that's relatively i mean it's very very problematic um can be quite extreme and they can be very tragic if that leads a person to transition and they then regret it because they realize that they're you know that, uh, you know a gay person without their genitals for instance you know um but it's a little bit different that ordinary discomfort which we all have growing up to somebody who is, you know, prone to a psychotic rage. Like my first patient, Chris was, he very generously let me talk about him. Uh, and, um, he really, the first thing he said when his penis was cut off and he woke up from the operation was, I feel as if all my anger has been cut out. And for him, it was a moment of elation because this part of himself that he hated the angry part, which got into a psychotic rage, which he associated with masculinity, had now been physically removed. But then, nine years or so later, you realize that he was still subject to the same psychotic rages, so that in a psychological problem, he'd been sold a physical solution to that. And then he came to see me because he wanted to detransition. So that was the early 90s. That was my first detransitioner. And he was very clear. I mean, I, my reaction was one of horror and, and I immediately thought, well, maybe you've just got to try and find a way of living with this and, and accepting an existence as a woman because you can't really go back. And he said, no, 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 that's wrong. I'm, I'm actually a man. I'm not a woman. I'm a man who has had mutilating surgery. He looked me straight in the eyes and said that. And I felt, you know, humbled really. And from then on, I worked with him. And that the origin of his um, hatred of his own, what he perceived of as his toxic masculinity, which also included autogynophilia in his case. And we spent a long time trying to work on his feelings about himself, his sexuality, his body, his relationship with his father, um, which was 
very, very difficult. And um, then he asked me to write about him and his experience because when he tried to write about it, he was completely vilified and trashed and, and attacked by um, the transgender community that had formerly supported him in his transition. So I was sort of um, immunized, if you like, from early on before the whole trans wave started hit hitting. I, I already realized that you can make terrible mistakes and that often there are psychological problems like sexual trauma, uh, ego alien sexual feeling, uh, and so on, which get experienced and translated into gender dysphoria, and then you attempt to change your body to, to remedy that. So I was aware of that from working with Chris in the early 90s, but it wasn't really until around 2012 when the wave of people wanting to transition started hitting the clinic where I work in Brighton. And then I started rethinking about my work with Chris and encountering problems when I tried to work psychologically with people who wanted to take physical steps to change their body. But I thought, whoa, actually, I need to write this paper now. I need to do it urgently. And it took me three years from starting to write it for it to be published in 2015. I actually took it to the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, who initially gave me some positive feedback, along with some negative feedback, and um, eventually said they wouldn't publish the article, I think, because it was some um, too controversial for them to handle at the time, but the, the Jungian journal took it on, and as I say, um, you know, they gave me an award for it. So uh, that's the story of, of that article, and that's an answer for, or a response to some of what you've just said. I don't know if there are any other things that you were asking about that I haven't responded to. And you noted these themes in his story that you've seen echoed in the stories of other males who wish to transition themes of having violent, abusive fathers, lack of any positive male role models, um, abandonment by by the mother. Yeah, and abandonment by the father. Yeah, so there's, so there's an insecure attachment base usually. So the primary carer doesn't give a secure enough attachment to deal with trauma. And then in the case of a lot of the men that I've seen, there's been a violent or aggressive father or paternal figure that is experienced as ego alien or, you know, it's toxic masculinity, the, the violent, abusive, alcoholic and abandoning father really, which is kind of trope of our age, I suppose, which makes a lot of men feel incredibly uncomfortable with their sex male body. You referenced the story of a, a different therapist's patient uh, who went by the name Ven, I believe in your article. Um, and this patient was a female who wished to transition to male. And uh, from what I recall about her story, at the age of three, um, her mother was in a very difficult situation, uh, dealing with loss of husband in a war zone, and basically had to choose to give her up and keep her younger brother because she, um, the mother was just not capable of taking care of two children in that environment. And so the way that that trans-identified female um, made sense of that at such a young age was, if I was a boy, my mom would have kept me. Or if if I am a boy, my mom will still love me, even though she's gotten rid of me. Right, yeah. So that was the unconscious fantasy for Ben, that she could keep her mother's love by identifying as a boy. And a lot of the time, I think, 
it is that need that we have to keep the connection with our primary carer, our attachment need, which actually fuel the trans-identification in a similar way to that story with Ben. Um, and there are very often, if you look at it with a psychoanalytic perspective, there are very often stories like that, which can be, uh, they can be used to help illuminate what some of the motivation for the um, wish to surgically change your body might be. And the hope, of course, is that if you can actually work with that and metabolize the emotion around it, in Ben's case, that she could have come to terms with the grief of the loss of the mother, although that's really difficult at the age of three. But if she could have come to terms with that and grieved it and, and reconnected with a good enough maternal figure, then perhaps she wouldn't have felt the need to change her body, which isn't really going to give her what she wants or needs anyway. It's just going to give her uh, an illusion of a body which will have a better attachment to the mother figure, which will have a powerful effect on her psyche, but, um, you know, um, there may be less cruel ways of, of managing the trauma of the separation. Although it's very difficult to work with these early attachment traumas because they, they overwhelm the person and they feel unmanageable. People don't really want to go there. And also therapists don't really want to go there. So there's a resistance in the patient. There's a resistance in the analyst. And also there's a resistance in society to work with these areas of dysregulated affect, serious attachment trauma. And it feels an easy solution for concern to just say, okay, well, um, you're trans, let's alter your body. And for some people, of course, they say it works, and I wouldn't say that it never does, although there's no proper scientific evidence to show that it does. But we as therapists have let down a whole population of people by too quickly affirming them, affirming their gender identity, celebrating it, and encouraging them to do something physical to their bodies, which is not going to really resolve the underlying problem. That's really what I've been trying to say, um, you know, either in the articles I've been writing over the last few years, um, or, you know, um, in private talking about it before that, you know, my father-in-law was actually a gender surgeon who did the breast surgery on trans females. And so very early on, I was talking to him about my misgivings of people who were transitioning for psychological reasons. He took that in, you know, he understood it. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. 
Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You talk about the unconscious and what could be going on unconsciously, like the wish to win back mother's love, for instance, or the wish to be rid of one's anger. And in your articles, you point out that in all the public discourse these days about gender, there's, there's no mention of the unconscious. Well, that's right. So this must be a strange departure for for you to witness as uh, someone who's been a psychoanalyst for a long time to see this cultural shift from understanding that therapy is about exploring the unconscious and that the unconscious can manifest in wishes and desires and conceptualizations that aren't rational. Um, from from understanding that to then this this trend now where we we're denying the role of the unconscious. What's it been like for you to see that shift? Well, it's been disconcerting. I don't think I've really quite understood it. Um, and I've fallen foul of it. I suppose I've thought about it quite a lot. And, and I think that part of the problem, um, I think part of the problem is that if you have a two sort of, um, I mean, I think there are some very good person centered or humanistic psychotherapist, but I think there are some people who just believe that all you've got to do is reflect back a positive picture of your patient, and all you've got to do is just take what they say and affirm it, and then everything else will just take care of itself. So that kind of person-centered, humanistic, more Rogerian approach, if it's not also accompanied by a real exploration of what may what the patient may be avoiding, then I, I think that um, you can end up with a, um, a dangerous situation, which is the situation we've got ourselves into, where psychotherapists are letting patients down. Um, and what I'm kind of hoping is that um, there can maybe be a cultural shift to go back to a more psychoanalytic way of thinking, because I think it does offer, um, at its best, and it's got it's got its faults. You know, one of the worst things we did as therapists in the past was we. We pathologized homosexuality, you know, which was a, a disgrace. And, um, you know, we're still suffering from that a bit. And I think a lot of my profession doesn't want to repeat that. So they're very quick to affirm trans identity as if it was the same as affirming somebody's homosexuality. It isn't. Nobody has to have surgery or hormones ever. Be gay. Uh, and if you feel you've made a mistake, well, you can just go back to being straight or you can decide you're bi or whatever it is. The stakes are so much higher that this whole current trend to equate conversion therapy with gay conversion therapy and to say that there's a thing gender identity conversion therapy, which is equivalent or in some way the same, is just totally misunderstand the, the level of the stakes that are involved and the importance of working psychologically. We have an ethical responsibility as therapists. 
explore what may be driving somebody's wish to transition medically before we support and affirm them with that wish. And I think it's um, clinical negligence, really, not to. And I can see that the scandal that, that is erupting now around the ease with which people have transitioned without proper exploration is actually going to be, you know, a bigger storm and a bigger shitstorm than the one that we were defending against when we were wrongly pathologizing homosexuality. Because now we're actually castrating gay people and encouraging them to get mastectomies of becoming fertile and jeopardize their sexual pleasure going forward. And that physical harm that is being done through the, the present practices as advocated by organizations such as the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, which seems to me very unscientific and little more than a trans activist organization, the harm that's being done by that idea that we have to affirm and promote somebody's gender identity, whatever the cost to their body integrity, um, is in one mind a bigger scandal, an even bigger scandal than the scandal of psychoanalysis wrongly pathologizing being gay. I have to say in defense of psychoanalysis, it, it was a general cultural thing at the time. You know, it was, it was illegal when I was a kid. I can remember it being legalized in 1967 in England, but up to that point, people were imprisoned or, in fact, um, chemically castrated <laughs> in, in, a, in a cruel twist of fate. You know, people like Alan Turing were allowed to have a choice. You either go to prison for your homosexuality or you take estrogen, which will, um, which will act to inhibit your sexuality. And, of course, he chose to take estrogen, which disturbed the balance of his mind, and one of the most brilliant scientists of his generation ended up committing suicide as a result of taking the estrogen, which was given him as an alternative to imprisonment. So it's not long ago that that was happening in Britain. Um, I don't know when it got legalized in the States. But as I say, I think this, is going, this has the potential to be an even bigger scandal, because we've let people down even more badly, I think. I mean, Turing, Turing, you know, a terrible example. Um, you know, that was all absolutely awful what's happened to the British government have apologized. But I can see that the therapy profession will have to apologize to the detransitioners and the people who've been harmed by gender medicine in the, in the coming decades. I want to pick your brain more about our empathic blind spots, um, what we miss when we fail to see the unconscious in ourselves and others um, and this trend of collusion. Um, you know, many people, of course, have likened what's going on now with the sexual mutilation of mentally ill and vulnerable people to the lobotomies of last century. Um, what you've done that's really interesting is you've actually looked at what uh psychoanalysts like Winnicott were saying at the time because Winnicott um, was in, in the era of lobotomies, right? And so he was actually publishing literature commenting on where we went wrong as a profession or the, the, where the medical and mental health professions and as well as society were going wrong at the time that allowed the lobotomy epidemic to occur. So I think that's really brilliant that you've gone a step further than what everyone else is saying about, oh, this is like lobotomies. And you, you've looked at 
what what were the, the wise people in the field of psychology saying back then? Um, so what are some of the themes that you've observed in terms of our empathic failures, blind spots, the unconscious, and countertransference issues? Yeah, well, I think it, it's... Um, I have to take it on a case-by-case basis because everybody is unique. Um, Winnicott himself was working with a patient who these days would have been um, identified as trans. Um, this is somebody who had been in analysis for 14 years and somehow couldn't get to the bottom of what was troubling him. A successful man, but with a series of failed, but, well, difficult relationships. And um, one day, Winnicott heard this man talking about something into Winnicott's mind sounded like penis envy, which of course, you know, it's a, some people would say it's an outmoded Freudian term, other people would reinterpret it in psychological sense, but Winnicott thought he heard his patient talking about penis envy and thought, this is a man talking about penis envy, so how can this be the case? Um, and then he got the idea in his head thinking about his response, that then this is sort of like the reverie or thinking about not just the rational part of ourselves but how we listen to people in a more sort of creative unconscious way and he suddenly had the illusion that he was talking to a girl and suddenly it made sense for him and he said you, you know I, 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 I've just had the image that I'm talking to a girl not a man at all and the patient turned to Winnicott and said thank goodness you've said that because if I said that um people would think that I was mad. And when he got writes a paper about this, about the uh, male and female elements in the psyche, I think it's all split off male and female and female elements in the psyche. And he says at this point, he could have just left it there, but then he realized that he was, he was actually seeing a girl when he knew there was a boy there. And he said to the patient, no, you're not the mad one. I'm the mad one. I, I, I know that I'm the boy. But I've got the psychotic delusion that I'm talking to a girl. So he allowed himself to have that mad thought. And then the patient and he were able to work on why and how this had happened. And what they realized was that the mother, for various reasons, which we're not, we're not told in the paper, when the little boy was born, had wrapped him up in a diaper, I think we call them in American nappies, we call them there, um, it, as if he didn't have male genitals. And there's a fantasy on the mother's part that for some reason she's had a little girl and not a little boy. We don't know why that fantasy is there. But Winnicott decides that at that moment in the countertransference, he is making an unconscious identification with the mother who saw that she had a little girl when actually she had a little boy. And um, there are other cases. There's a case by a, a modern analyst or Melanie Suchet, who writes a paper for Crossing Over, and she talks about her work with a trans man, this biological female, who she tries to psychoanalyze over a long period of time and actually doesn't manage to work psychologically and comes to the conclusion that actually this person is going to be better off transitioning. And she writes a paper about how she's being converted, really, into thick bits. Suchet is crossing over from thinking psychoanalytically to thinking actually for some people it's better to surgically transition. Now it might be 
that that's the case. But I think that in that paper, Suchet may have missed a piece of countertransference because I think if you read the paper very, very carefully, you get you, you learn that the patient's mother was sexually abused, I think by her father, if I remember it correctly. And it's entirely possible that when she saw her little girl born, something unconsciously in the mum felt that she had to intervene to almost treat the little girl as if she was a little boy in order to protect her from the kind of abuse that she herself had suffered as a child. And it's almost as if the mother's internal introjection of the little boy gets picked up on by the patient. And in order to stay attached to the mother, the child has to go along with the mother's defensive delusion. So that's another example in a, somebody else's case. I can talk about it because it's Melanie Suchet's case. Um, that's, an, that's another example of what Winnicott was talking about, where in the, uh, uh, well, where the attachment can be very important and the child growing up may have to identify with the opposite gender in order to keep the attachment to the mother, which is the kind of crucial thing for a person to do. But I would maintain, and Suchet would be at liberty to disagree with me, I'd be interested in having a conversation at some point, but I would wonder whether she failed to recognize an identification in the counter-transference with the mother. The Winnicott picked up and realized that he was identifying with the mother when he thought that he saw a little girl. And I wonder if sometimes we unconsciously identify with a parent who has perhaps defensively um, thought that they are bringing a little boy into the world when actually it's a little girl, biologically, and vice versa. So it, it's, uh, this is a slightly long-winded and complicated way of saying that attachment is very important and that these things can get played out in the transference and the counter-transference. And if we don't recognize them, we can end up reinforcing somebody's wish for surgery and hormones rather than working with these very early attachment issues, which can be quite difficult to reach and very painful for the patient to acknowledge. And um, the analyst, the patient, the therapist can all want to avoid this uh, and um, not work it through. So uh, I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I don't believe in banning surgery or banning hormones, although I think we need much more information about them because the harms that they can do are so vastly underestimated. So many of the people who are going for these treatments don't really have any idea of what they're letting themselves in for. And even at a big organization like the Tavistock JIDS in London, there has been no proper research on what the effect of puberty blockers are, for instance. They give these things out to a fairly large percentage of people reporting to the clinic. And they don't even bother to follow up on the um, information of what the effect of this has been. And partly that's because of this confidentiality issue that we were talking about earlier. Because once the patient changes their identity, it's a confidentiality issue, which means that you can't track to see what the effect was of the treatment. And fortunately, that's just been legally changed by Sajid Javid, the health secretary here in England, when he said that in order to be able to gather effective information, we have to over, overturn this confidentiality law, which has been used, I would claim, by people wanting to promote surgery and hormones for illegitimate reasons to do with, you know, having a vested interest in those treatments. And, and I, I would claim that it's it's been used as a way of um, 
not covering information, which A, should have been covered, and B, I'm fairly confident if it was covered, um, would probably not show the um, wonderful shining results that the YouTube the influencers are telling these kids they've had from taking soda and hormones for their gender disorder. I want to read some excerpts from the seventh penis, uh, Chris's case, if that's all right. Please, yeah, that's fine, because okay. Chris wants me to talk about him, so that's fine. So just to remind the listeners who are still following along, this was the early 90s. Yeah. Um, so Chris had transitioned nine years prior when he came to see you. He Is had, that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And right before he saw you, and, and you, you mentioned this earlier, but I want to read the way you wrote it in the article. Sure. A couple of years earlier, after living as a woman for nine years, a significant moment had occurred. He had introduced himself to a new psychiatrist who had told him, but you are not a woman, are you? You are a man who has had mutilating surgery. I gasped involuntarily at what I regarded as this psychiatrist's monumental insensitivity, but Chris held my gaze steadily and replied matter-of-factly that he had been right. That part blew me away. Uh, the psychiatrist said something true that so many people are afraid to say to patients nowadays, and yet it was exactly what he needed to hear. And just reflecting on this piece and countertransference issues, I'm thinking, you know, do we infantilize our patients? Do we coddle them? Do we fear conflict? Do we fear, like you say, psychotic states, rage, theirs or ours, um, when we assume that people can't handle the truth, right? And you talk about this later, you say, um, I began to be filled with a deep sense of admiration for this man who was so determined to face up to his mistakes and from whom I learned so much. I started to feel rather ashamed of my earlier impulse to encourage him to cut his losses and live as a woman. Chris himself was full of rage with the quote-unquote industry that he felt had sold him the illusion that having SRS would solve his psychological problems. I, I relate to this part too, because when I first started learning about detransitioners, I also felt this admiration, like these people are facing the truth, even though it is so incredibly painful and difficult to look at. And we have so many defense mechanisms that make us want to do anything but look at the truth. And I feel like there's a connection there where part of how detransitioners have ended up where they are is that other people along the way colluded with their particular form of insanity and were afraid that people, that they couldn't handle the truth, that they're not growth oriented. Like I guess my view of human nature is that we're all growth oriented. And the person I meet when they're 18 is going to be different when they're 25. Um, so, ah, gosh, I just want to stop there and let you. Well, no, I think that I think that's right. But what I would respond to there is that Chris had lived as a woman post surgery for nine years, and he realised that it it hadn't solved his problem. So he was actually ready to hear what that psychiatrist said. But if Chris had come to see me before the surgery, having already drunk the Kool Aid and thought that this was going to solve his problems, and I had said to him. 
look, Chris, you're not really a woman at all. You're a man who is about to embark on mutilating surgery. He would have just left me or made a complaint against me or um, accused me of transphobia. Or, um, because it's a question of timing, isn't it? It's a question of when and how you confront. And it's a question of building a relationship first where you can actually say these painful and difficult things at a time that the patient can use them. And that's so much of the art of being a sensitive and effective therapist. And, and I'm not always that, you know, sometimes I lumber in and say things at the wrong time. And that's what I was trying to reflect on, you know, my mistakes so that I could help other people learn from that. Um, but as I said, I can't say any more about that case, but, but I, I did find, um, in the literature that there was a poem about Attif and, um, Catullus wrote a poem about somebody in Roman times who had um, similarly identified as trans and frustrated himself, and that, that gave me an opportunity to say some of the things I wanted to say using that poem in my second paper on transgender medicalization. And after I'd written the first paper and it won the award, I got contacted by um, some people who were writing um, an academic collection of, of essays um, around the whole thing about young people with gender dysphoria. Uh, yeah, Heather Brunskill Evans and um, Michelle Moore got together a group of people, therapists, detransitioners, parents, and academics, and brought together a whole collection of essays in two of their volumes. The second volume was called um, uh, inventing transgender children and young people. And I got asked to contribute a chapter to each of those two books. And I've also written a couple of other chapters, one of them in a journal of child psychotherapy and another in a book that's just coming out. So as a result of that first article, although it's now been revoked, I did get to write five other articles, which are still out there. So, um, if you look me up on the internet, my name is, is Mud, you know, I have, well, I can't, I can't even, I can't reply to it without risking further breaches of confidentiality, but I just have to live with that and uh, I'll let people draw their own conclusions about what they, what they read, but it's not, it is an attempt to discredit me. Um, but I think I'm trying to make the arguments speak for themselves. You know, it's, it's the ad hominem attacks, which I think actually reflect worse on the opposition than on the people that they're attacking. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. 
Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. There's so many places to go. There's so many gems from your articles, and I know we're not going to be able to get to them all. I want to read an excerpt from the beginning of your uh, article, Transgender Medicalization, which was published November 17th, 2020 in the Journal of Analytical Psychology. So in the introduction or the abstract, you say, in this paper, the author argues that trans identification and its associated medical treatment can constitute an attempt to evade experiences of psychological distress. This occurs on three levels. Firstly, the trans person themselves may seek to evade dysregulated affects associated with such experiences as attachment trauma, childhood abuse, and ego-alien sexual feelings. By the way, I'm just going to pause for anyone who's not a therapist who's listening and has never heard the phrase ego-alien before. Could you define that term? Well, I mean, it's the things which our conscious self would repudiate and say, you know, of course I'm not gay. I don't feel attracted to people of my sex. Um, so if that, right. that would be ego, that would be alien to my ego, but my body might actually respond in a way that my ego dislikes, and then I can have a, a conflict going on between my ego and my body. Or my, or, okay. or, or and my, continuing on with the quote. Sorry, or my conscious self, my unconscious self, that's the other part about conflict. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Right. Right. And I just want to normalize, you know, how common that is, whether it's about sexuality or anything else, it's, it's so normal. And, you know, collectively we as therapists have <laughs> agreed on this until recently, there's, there's nothing especially unusual about having uh, parts of you that are disquieting to your conscious sense of who you are. Um, okay. Continuing, you say, secondly, therapists may attempt to evade feelings such as fear and hatred evoked by engaging with these dysregulated affects. Thirdly, we as a society may wish to evade acknowledging the reality of such trauma, abuse, and sexual distress by hypothesizing that trans identification is a biological issue best treated medically. The author argues that the quality of evidence supporting the biomedical approach is extremely poor. This puts young trans people at risk of receiving potentially damaging medical treatment they may later seek to reverse or come to regret while their underlying psychological issues remain unaddressed. So if that abstract doesn't encourage people to go and read this article, I don't know what does. I mean, this is what you do in the paper. Um, I think it's so important, everything that you're talking about, right? That what people are seeking to avoid by identifying as trans, what therapists are avoiding by colluding with that identification rather than questioning it with, as you say, appropriate timing, right? Building the relationship, not challenging it too early, but not failing to challenge it either. Um, and then what's happening to us collectively that we don't want to look at what could really be going on. So again, coming back to that kind of empathic failure, empathic blind spot, in what ways is it more convenient or um, pleasurable in some way for us to think, oh yes, there is this, this thing called being born in the wrong body and there's nothing wrong with it. And we just need to support and affirm people rather than looking at some of the 
again, uh, disquieting aspects of what could be going on that's causing people to express these things. If it's all right with you, I'm going to skip ahead um, to some, some other quotes. Yeah, please. Okay. Um, so earlier I mentioned that I loved that you quoted Winnicott and you looked at um, what was being said in the era of lobotomies. So um, in your article, you say that Winnicott went on to cite the wish to evade such painful experiences as one of the reasons that the mental health workers of his day endorsed scientifically unjustified physical treatments such as ECT and lobotomy. Perhaps similar processes are at work today with trans patients and their therapists. Both those who are too quick to affirm and those who are too quick to challenge their patient's wish to medically transition may be attempting to avoid experiencing distress in the countertransference. This leaves the patient less able to bear their own distress, which can result in them initiating medical treatment prematurely. So, you know, it's unfortunate that you received the complaint about the first article and that that got revoked because you did really beautifully portray uh, a lesson you learned from reflecting on your own countertransference that you you thought in that moment that you offended the patient, um, that you had been too quick to challenge the patient's wish to transition, and you looked at what was being enacted between the two of you in the transference and countertransference. Yeah. Then you talk about Chris um, and... Again, this, uh, well, you said this earlier, but you say, when Chris, my first ever trans patient, woke up from the operation to remove his penis, the first thing he said was, I feel as if all my anger has been cut out. We could say he tried to deal with his dysregulated affect, his madness, by dissociating from it, projecting it into his penis, and cutting it off. And the things that you describe um, with Chris are pretty classic. They're, they're the things that I now realize people like you have been trying to say for a long time, right? Which is that he had no positive male role models, that his father had been abusive, and his mother had made it clear that she saw men as toxic, right? So then, of course, it makes sense that this is how he related to his own body. And the things that went wrong for him medically were also the same things that people have been trying to blow the whistle about, Um I could take, I actually kind of want to go back to the first article. Sorry, um, we're going to edit this part, but I, I did want to mention what you'd said about what went wrong for Chris surgically. Yeah. So back from your first article, when his penis had been removed in the original operation, some of the foreskin and its associated nerve tissue had been fashioned into a kind of clitoris and his scrotum into an artificial vagina. Unfortunately, there had been complications. He had suffered repeated urinary tract infections. The work of the original operation had broken down and the artificial vagina had had to be reconstructed using a piece of his gut. The clitoris did not seem to really work and he was unable to experience proper orgasms. Surgery could restore him a prosthetic penis, which, however, would never give him real sexual pleasure. A date had been fixed for an operation to have his breast tissue removed, and he had stopped taking the estrogen routinely uh, prescribed for male-to-female transsexuals. Then you later explain that um, it was not even understood at the time that f for him to revert to living as his biological sex after um, having had those surgeries that he would need exogenous testosterone again. So you describe that um, 
being in this kind of no man's land of trying to provide therapy to someone in this very unique situation back in the day, you didn't know. And it took years for doctors to even figure out that part of the depression he was experiencing at the time um, wasn't just psychological, it was physical because of his lack of any proper male hormones in his body. Um, you say that once he started taking testosterone, then uh, some of his depression symptoms lifted. Yeah, that's right. And he, he did tell me later on as well that um, some of his sexual feelings came back as well. And um, he was able to experience orgasm again, but through a phantom penis. So the, the thing is, it's not really a female orgasm because you still have your prostate. So you ejaculate male ejaculate, of course, without sperm. Um, and in his case, as I say, it was through a phantom penis. It isn't always through a phantom penis. But um, yeah, he did correct me later on that his sexual function returned. And also, when he was taking estrogen, he could he could orgasm. So, um, but he he remained only really able to experience orgasm when he was identified as a woman. So even in his later sexual experiences with his female partner, he found it more easy to feel sexually excited if he dressed up in women's clothes, which is a form of transvestism, really. And um, I think that's quite common, but you would you would expect that in a way because if your attachment figure uh, treats you as female and you only feel secure with with her if you identify as female, then it can be quite frightening to have a male orgasm as a man because that means losing your primary attachment figure. And that was actually the same problem that Hickok's patient was facing. I was talking about just now. And also, if I can just quickly mention the books that I couldn't remember the title of earlier on, but it, the, the first one was called Transgender Children and Young People Born in Your Own Body. And the second one was called Inventing Transgender Children and Young People. Uh, like, you know, also in their time, they've been pretty influential, I think, in bringing another, another series of voices. Uh, we've had some American uh, contributors to those books as well. Anyway. All I got to say about that. Back to your first article, and I know I'm hopping around a bit. There are just so many parts that struck me that I, I wanted to highlight. Um, another thing that shocked me was to know, uh, to, to learn how much we've actually known for a long time that uh, there's manipulation going on of, you know, trans identified people learning what to say to get what they want, right? So in your first article, uh, at some point you yourself challenged how he had been mistreated by medical professionals. And you say, quote, Chris replied that it was not their fault. Even in those days before the advent of the internet, nearly everyone wanting the sex change operation was familiar with all the relevant literature and knew exactly what the psychiatrists and counselors wanted to hear. A quote unquote helpful transsexual community had schooled him in what to say in these interviews. All he had to do now was show strong motivation and demonstrate the clear conviction that he had thought of himself as a girl from an early age while avoiding divulging any information that might lead to an alternative diagnosis such as homosexuality, transvestitism, or, or a paraphilia. He carried this off with a plum. That's right. It's this coaching thing. Just that people have already been sold the solution and um, they're prepared to give misinformation in order to get this full solution. Um, it surprises me that we can't, or it's taken us so long to 
to see the sort of influence of peer pressure of the internet and also of money. You know, it's, there's big money behind something like Lupron. I don't know. I don't know how much the industry is worth, but if you can convince kids that it's their human right to take um, puberty blockers and they cost a lot of money, well, that's going to make the drug companies the manufacturer them. You know, billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars worldwide. So it's surprising that people haven't seen that. I, I mean, we, we do begin. Let's move on to that section. Yeah. Of your article, Transgender Medicalization, you talk about puberty blockers, and I highlighted some of the figures that you provided. So, um, for example, in the USA at the time that you wrote this two years ago, uh, Lupron cost over $9,500 for a three-month supply. Um, And you also provide more information about Lupron, such as that um, in 2001, a study of 30 children who was pre- who were prescribed puberty blockers for precocious puberty showed a 7% drop in IQ. Um, you also talk about the findings with regard to how the processes in the brain that are orchestrated by sex hormones affect the emotional, cognitive, and social brain network development. Um, so normally, with under the influence of normal puberty, these brain areas diminish in gray matter, quote unquote, uh, this is from you, and increase in white matter as neural networks are consolidated and the myelination of nerve pathways occurs. So we have plenty of information on how these hormones are harmful to the developing brains. Um, Then you go on to cite studies about how sheep that were given puberty blockers in adolescence were measurably less able to navigate a maze when they were tested a year after stopping the blockers. Um, That's right. Fear and stress responses are also persistently affected. Gene expression in the hippocampus, an area of the brain connected to spatial memory and embodied sense of self, is measurably changed on autopsy. Yep, and on the autopsy testing. But normally, if you have a drug which is being tested, first thing you do before you test it on humans is, is you give it to animals. And if the animal tests show Arm, you don't proceed to humans, but for some reason we haven't given trans kids the same protection. We've we've um, encouraged them to demand puberty blockers as a human right, and the drug companies have cleaned up. Anybody who says otherwise is a transphobic bigot, like you and I. Great, and then you cite studies demonstrating that 95 to 100 percent of children who are presenting with gender dysphoria who are prescribed these blockers will go on to medically transition, whereas an average of 80% who are not given any medical interventions will spontaneously desist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can argue on the fine print. You could say maybe the people who are given the puberty blockers are more insistent, persistent and insistent than the people who are not given the puberty blockers. And that might skew the results a little bit. Um, But it seems pretty clear but once you start affirming somebody socially and chemically, you are actually pushing them along a particular pathway, which will end up uh, between 95 and 100% of them in some form of medical transition, whether that's taking cross-sex hormone or having surgery or both. Um, so that's why that in England, the CAS report uh, has recommended um, closing down the Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic 
and because they claim that the treatment there is unsafe, this is a government commissioned um, investigation into the treatment of gender dysphoric children. Uh, Dillary Cass, the psychiatrist who's undertaken that investigation, has, has um, made an interim report, and now the National Health Service here is putting out some guidelines which are much more orientated towards safeguarding children, and there's a consultation going on at the moment. And no doubt there'll be two sides. There'll be the trans activists who are saying this is a disgrace because you're denying children life-saving medication, medically necessary surgery and hormones. And then there'll be the people like you and I on the other side, a lot of the parents and the detransitioners who are saying, hang on a minute, you know, this can do very, very serious harm. And before we embark on a pathway like that, we should at least have some robust evidence to show that it works. Where's the evidence? Um, and the fact is that if you look at the studies which claim to show that this treatment works, um, you know, a, an undergraduate university student could debunk it. You know, the, the met methodology is falling, the vested interests, you know, the Dutch protocol was funded by um, the medical company that provides puberty blockers in Holland and um, in England, and they, they funded the clinic, which claimed to show what a success um, the, you know, the, the administration of these puberty blockers is. Preparing pharmaceuticals, you know, if you look at you, you, I mean, and then they're transparent about it. They say, thank you very much to foreign pharmaceutical. But, um, but they don't, if they don't actually say funding the research, they say for, um, you know, providing the funds which uh, go behind the, this clinical investigation. But they do declare it in their interests. People ignore it. You know, it's shocking to me that many of the people who are promoting gender ideology, if you look at their overall politics, many of them, you know, being strongly left-leaning, they're anti-capitalist, and they're generally very suspicious toward multinational corporations. Um, they're suspicious of the profit motive. They're quick to throw the label grifter out there. Um, I feel like there's this whole cohort of people on the internet who aren't very educated, who recently learned the term grifter, and now they're just throwing it at everything left and right. You know, they're so suspicious of the profit motive um, in so many other areas. And yet when people like you and I, um, point out that there might be a profit motive. It's like, yeah, that's in one ear, out the other. Um, I, I also wanted to call our listeners' attention to the section of the article where you talk about detransitioning and you debunk some of the myths about low regret rates. I, I think you do a really good job of that pretty succinctly in this section. So I'm going to read some quotes from that. Um, so you write, a study by Weep, just we, I don't we, know we, at we, all. That, that's the biggest we, stuff. Weep is, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a Weepiest. name, and and it's the biggest study of its sort on detransitioners, and it's the one most often quoted by anybody who is quoting figures for detransition. So the things that you're about to read okay. apply to this major article. That's the most important one that the trans activists right. to defend their, their position. Let's go there. A study by Wipius et al. 2018 reports a 0.5% regret rate for quote-unquote gender-affirming surgery among the quote Amsterdam cohort of trans patients. But 36% of participants in the study were lost to follow-up 
and it is fair to assume that those dissatisfied with the treatment are less likely to return to the clinic providing it. In addition, those who died during the study were excluded from its statistics. However, we know from De- Dejna well, at all, 2011. Denya. Uh, well, Denya. <laughs> that's my attempt to pronounce. Uh, okay. <laughs> However, we know from Denya at all, 2011, that suicide rates are around 20 times higher in a post-surgical trans population than in a group matched for age, sex, and psychological disturbance. Suicides were not included in WPS figure, although it seems reasonable to assume that at least some of those who committed suicide regretted their surgery. The definition of regret used in WPS study was prohibitively narrow. It only included those who underwent a gonadectomy, expressed regret, and returned to the Amsterdam clinic for sex-appropriate hormones. It did not include those who quietly desisted without reporting back to the clinic or those who regretted their surgery but decided to live with it. Nor did it include people like my ex-patient, Chris, who were silenced by the trans community. It did not include people who self-medicated or those who trans-identified, started hormone treatment, and then desisted before gonadectomy. Regret when it did occur in the WIPIA study was an average of 130 months after surgery. The recent surge of young trans people only began around 2011, so it is hard to know in 2020 how applicable WPS figures are to this cohort. Wow, that's a really excellent takedown. As I say, an undergraduate student could do it. You just have to read the, um, got to read the paper. I did have an academic, I had an academic job um, Westminster University for 14 years as a sort of senior lecturer in well, it's really about um, the mind-body relationship in the history of medicine. So I've got kind of a bit of an academic background on a master's program there, so I'm probably a bit better equipped to critique people like that than some people, but the, the other papers are even worse. You know, at least Weepier has got a reasonable sample size. The other papers are, you know, they're comparing incomparable groups. They've got tiny numbers. Uh, and as I say, I think if you actually ask ordinary trans people who are not activists, if they knew then what they know now, would they still have gone ahead with transition? I think you might find lots of people quietly say, well, look, if I'm honest, I'm not really happy with what's happened. You know, the detransitioners I work with suffer from a range of physical problems from incontinence to sexual dysfunction um, and uh, difficulties coming to terms with what's happened to them. So uh, there's a lot of addiction, uh, substance misuse, and real, real distress, because on top of the original distress, you've now got the extra trauma of the the surgery and the hormones, and also the guilt and the the feeling that you've done this to yourself. You've encouraged people to help you get this kind of treatment, and, and now you've made your condition worse. So it's very hard to live with that, you know, the people who come out and speak despite that shame and despite the fact that they get attacked and they get vilified and they get called traitors to the trans community are so brave and, you know, they deserve so much respect because I think it's those people who are going to make a difference because it's those people who make it clear that they should have had psychological treatment before they did something permanent to their bodies. Yeah, the de- the complex trauma of, of detransition and some of the most... It's, it's some of the most compounding trauma that I've ever seen, right? Because there's whatever the original issue was, 
And then there's, it's, it's that combination of betrayal and abandonment by the people who are supposed to look after you, that you went to medical and mental health professionals saying, I'm distressed, I need help. And that they were so quick to uh, do something that you you can't walk walk it back from. And, and many do feel like oh, this was a cry for help. This was, you know, I was saying, this is the best narrative I have. Um, for my distress, can you can you help me figure out if there's any other way to think about it? And you know, if if you listen to my interview with Oliver Davies, I can't remember what what episode number that was, but his detransition story, he talks about that too. That when he went to a psychologist, um, saying I think I'm trans, he he even kind of asked like, is there any other way to think about this? <laughs> um, so there's the abandonment and betrayal, and for many people, that's just kind of. It's, it's a re-traumatization of the original trauma of abandonment and betrayal by their caregivers, anyone who is abusive, neglectful, any history of sexual trauma. It's just that theme is compounding. Um, then there's that guilt, that, that, that feeling that I, I did this to myself. Um, and the humiliation. Yeah, and victims of sexual trauma often mm-hmm. do blame themselves. You know, oh, I let him do it. You know, I, I, I was abused, but, you know, I was complicit. Well... You know, that's sort of victim blame, blaming, isn't it? And as you say, um, that can get repeated. There's a horrible repetition compulsion, which psychoanalysis talks about, of course, that when, when we get traumatized, until we've actually worked through emotions associated with the trauma and regulated them and had some help manage, we tend to unconsciously get ourselves involved in situations which repeat the same emotional constellation that set up the original trauma. Both an attempt healing because it gives a chance, you know, with good conditions to manage something that hasn't been managed before. If you haven't got help with somebody who can help you understand it and you just go through it, you can do it over and over again and just get re-traumatized. So um, trauma, trauma work is really important the transitioners and with a lot of the people who want to transition to begin with. This trauma is often a part of what's happened to them and it's often a part of what sets up the hatred of the body because the person feels the body's betrayed them and led them into something which they realize is wrong and they wish hadn't happened. And one way of coping with that is to hate your body and then try and change it. That's a different body. And then you don't have to face it. Um, it's really, a, really that, that solution that's what you're doing is a kind of reinforcement of association. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. You talk about dissociation quite a bit in your work and how the trans-identified person has found this way of coping through their fixation on gender identity that reinforces the dissociation while at the same time, there's a desperate longing to be back in their body. And, but there's, there's this narrative that I, I can't be present in my body 
until I make all these changes to my body. And that's one of those things that has always just struck me as so dangerous about all of this, right? Because, and I would say this about anything, you know, you could take gender out of it. Whenever we're telling ourselves, when I achieve goal X, then everything will change. And then my habits and behaviors will change too. But until I've achieved this goal, um, I have all these reasons that I can't change my habits and behaviors. Well, you've spent months or years of your life then reinforcing the neural pathways associated with your existing habits and behaviors, right? So what makes you think that when this situation in your life changes, you will suddenly have all these brand new neural pathways that you haven't been strengthening uh, associated with whole different sets of habits and behaviors? That's one of the things I see as a danger for trans-identified people is that that they're kind of reinforcing their dissociation, their distress, their distrust of their body, um, feelings of helplessness and rage. You know, so much of the trans ideology just reinforces those neural pathways over and over again. And then there's this wishful thinking, this m- magical thing that's going to happen that once once I cross this threshold of transitioning or passing, then suddenly... I will change my whole outlook. I will change my whole relationship with my body. I will want to be present in my body and I will do all the right things to take care of my body. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've got anything to add to that except to say that Winnicott again talked very wisely about mind body dissociation and the fact that we all need our defenses. So if something bad is happening to us, one defense is dissociate from the body and watch from outside in a disembodied state. That can happen to people who are being traumatized. You know, I remember working with a patient who recalls seeing his motorbike with his body on it spinning over and over as he was in a motorbike crash. He was watching it from up a tree out of his body. Not uncommon, this defense association. Um... But if we identify with the disembodied mind and the body becomes the site of the trauma, then for Winnicott, that might be a healthy dissociation, but to get back into the sense of indwelling in the body, which is the sense of being whole, or what Jung would call an individuated sense of being all in one piece, we need to face the trauma that's been stored in the body and the bad feeling that is there with that trauma. And if we don't do that, we can never be properly reunited with our body in a full sense. But if we can do that, then we, we re-experience this psychosomatic indwelling, which, which Winnicott talks about as a sort of embodiment of the true self or um, just a, a sense of wholeness, which perhaps we experience originally in the womb and that unconsciously we're looking to go back to. And I think that the trouble with the trans narrative is it says that rather than face the trauma and the pain that's stored in the body and reunite with the body that way, that pain and trauma is too unmanageable. So we muscle the body in order to have a full self, a psychosomatic indwelling. I can see that that's very attractive. It makes a person feel, yeah, I can feel more at home in my body. Um, but if you've dissociated in the first place to escape from painful thoughts and feelings and experiences, then it's not really going to help you feel at one with those lost experiences because the very altering of the body is designed to reinforce dissociation as you say rather than to face it and the pain that goes with it and reintegrate it 
and mourn whatever it is that you've had as a painful experience or a painful trauma. Because when we mourn something, I think that gives us a chance to get over it and begin to be ready for new experiences and new attachments. We can't mourn something because we're using a powerful defense against that experience. Then we can never really reconnect with those lost parts of ourselves and they remain unavailable. They remain unavailable to us in terms of our self-experience and also to others in terms of relationship. So it's quite important, this idea of trying to, you know, therapy is a place where a person can begin to feel safe enough to re-experience the trauma which caused the original mind-body dissociation. And that's Winnicott's gift to us, truly. I think I am going to want to do a second episode with you just to talk about the psychological aspects of detransition because I mean we've we've started to uh, tap into your wisdom on that subject um, and there's just there's so much more there you know my, my thoughts on this at the moment are that the act of cutting off a body part that you have trauma associated with like for you know a female with sexual trauma to remove her breasts because they were groped inappropriately. For instance, it feels like letting the perpetrator win. It feels like colluding with the abuse in a way. Like, like yes, that was taken from me, and so I I can't ever have it back. Um, it feels like a giving in. Yeah, and I'm attacking of the self instead of marshalling a, a righteous anger about the person that abused you. And unfortunately, there are families in which that's encouraged, you know. Um, and then it's a historic thing as well, you know, victim blaming. And then the person can internalize that and feel bad about themselves and feel it's their body that's the problem. And you rightly say, the person might want to cut off their breasts um, because they feel that somehow they've been complicit in what's happened. We're not going to get to everything in your article, but I want to just kind of give an overview of a few other things you touched on. So one is you described the work of Dr. Az Hakim and the incredible results that he had from running psychotherapy groups, um, mixing pre and post-operative transsexuals. And he found that when people who had pinned all their hopes of resolution of their distress onto the idea of cross-sex hormones and surgeries, when those people were in therapy groups with people who had had those hormones and surgeries and found that they didn't solve all their problems, 98% desisted from desiring surgery. That That is incredible. And those results, I feel like, should be celebrated. Like, that's, that's great news that people don't have to, you know, if, if you find out that something so radical and life-altering isn't necessarily the solution to your problems. And so you give up on it and decide to look for a less invasive route. That's incredible. You also talk about young people coaching and self-diagnosis. I feel like that problem has only magnified in the two years since you published this. Um, you describe a case of female to male gender dysphoria as uh, pertaining to internalized homophobia. And then you use a... Uh, I'm sorry, what's what's the word? Not a case study. Max to Maxine. This is oh, yeah. from... It, it's actually from a TV program. Um, right. Sponsors called Butterfly. It's a three-part series. And the Susie Green, who's chief executive, was until she resigned a couple of days ago, she was the chief executive officer of the 
uh, charity mermaid and she had a uh, her fourth son um identified as trans she took him for surgery wait this is hold on let me make sure this i understand story. susie green gave advice to this program and the program butterfly depicts the journey of a child okay. who is called max and max becomes maxine uh, and it's more or less a, a retelling of the story of susie green's own son's journey to becoming a trans girl so this oh wow so it's both, okay i didn't know that yeah, it's both a fictional story but it's based on and advised by susie green and her experience of trying to get uh earlier gender affirming in inverted commas uh, medical treatment for her biological son so interesting yeah yeah so in the article you basically use this show to give you something to work with to describe three hypothetical scenarios in which you treat a patient who is depicted on the show. And I, I thought that was brilliant. Um, but I'm just now learning this from you. So um, do you have any thoughts? I mean, we're, we're recording this on November 28th. I don't know when the episode will air, but it was only a few days ago that Susie Green stepped down from mermaids. And from what I read, there's been some speculation that maybe her son is detransitioning. Do you know anything about that? No, I don't know anything about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about um, son detransitioning, but I think that um, mermaids made the mistake of trying to take the, L the lesbian, gay, and bisexual alliance to the charity commission to try and say that it wasn't a justifiable charity because it didn't include trans people under its banner. Um, and I think that's quite badly backfired because it's been quite clear that some of the practices from Mermaids, which is itself a charity receiving huge funding, are unsafe for children. So they've been um, referring kids to um, private gender doctor, Helen Webberly, have been recommending her website and they've been uh, supplying um, chest binders, breast binders to children without parents' knowledge or consent. Um, so there are, there are counter-accusations that Mermaid has uh, jeopardized the safety of the children that it's a charity supposing to protect. And I think Susie Green has been in charge, and so the speculation is that she's had to step down because of that. I'm not sure about the son detransitioning. I think that's just a rumor, but I, I wouldn't know because I think Mermaid's blocked me being a transphobic therapist. Uh, so yeah. But yeah, that, that story was based on her story with her son, the story in Butterfly. Wow. Fascinating. So I will include this article on um, in the show notes. I believe it's free public access. Yeah, it's open, it's open, public, open access. Okay. Wonderful. And I'd love to have you back sometime in 2023 to just talk more specifically about the the needs of detransitioners in therapy and all the different painful experiences that they might be coming to us for help for, because um, that is one of one of the main interests of in my audience. I have a lot of um, young therapists, uh, you know, other people at all stages in their career, but especially therapists who are kind of coming of age and entering the field during this time and seeing what's ahead. And they're looking to people like you and me for advice, like, I wanna work with detransitioners Tell me everything I need to know. So I'm going to have to pick your brain on behalf of all of those listeners another time. Yeah, and no, I'll be I'll be happy to do that. Although, subject to the issue that in order to give 
psychoanalysis is traditionally taught through case studies. Um, it's not a big statistical science. It's trying to get insight into the individual situation, which is unique. And one of the problems with the recent confidentiality rules being changed is that um, if you don't ask the patient permission to use their material, even if nobody else could recognize them, you can be done like I was for breach of confidentiality. And that would make it quite difficult for me to use specific case material because I would have to ask my patient's permission to do that. I can do that and I will do that. And I expect they'll consent. But there is a difference between somebody consenting in a therapeutic process and then actually hearing and seeing in public somebody else like me talking about their case. And they might they might actually come to regret having given permission. So we'd have to talk about how we might get around that if that was a problem. Um, and look, one of the reasons that I wrote about this TV program, Butterfly, was to get around exactly that problem. So I wouldn't have to talk about a specific case, but I could make the points. I'm sure if I was creative and given a bit of notice, I could do the same with the detransitioners without disrupting the therapy of somebody who would feel, yeah, they do want to give their permission for me to talk about their cases, but then could potentially regret it later on. I wouldn't want to put a patient in that position. So I'd either have to talk it through very thoroughly with my patients before doing it, which would take time, or I'd have to find another way of doing it, which I think is possible, but challenging. Yeah, well, those are some of the reasons that I've spent a lot of time learning from detransitioners outside of a therapy context. Yeah, that's a good thought. Long before I ever saw a detransitioner in therapy, I was listening to their stories and talking to them uh, for my podcast. And, you know, I have this correspondence project where it's very clear. I have everyone sign a waiver. Like, this is not therapy. It's not a substitute for therapy. I want to help you find a therapist. But I am doing this correspondence project to help me learn and help me write a book that is meant to be a helpful response to some common issues that um, survivors of gender malpractice I can experience. Talk in, I can talk in a general sense as well, although you know, I, I work mainly as an ordinary jobbing Jungian analyst or psychoanalyst, you know, so um, I could fill my practice with um, trans people and detransitioners and their parents and this, but I choose not to because it's actually a very difficult area to work with. Because people who are trying to change their body, they often find it difficult to symbolize and then they find it difficult to use words and they, they tend to find it hard to form an ordinary therapeutic alliance where there's a sort of a meaningful um, communication and connection through emotionally meaningful words and symbolic expression. It's quite hard for people, for instance, on the autistic spectrum, as quite a lot of these kids are, as you know, to find a way of really connecting emotionally. So they, they create the challenge for us, speaking, we have to be able to work with areas of trauma and autism and non-symbol formation, which uh, fall outside the ordinary psychotherapeutic experience. At least that's the case in the more extreme situations. You know, as I say, there are ordinary people who identify as trans and make mistakes. Then more or less, okay, that's not a problem. But some of the more extreme um, trans narratives and, and the people who are you know, watching the transition, um, you know, they can create a particular challenge for us, which I'm happy to talk about, but I don't think I have the answers to. So I'd be interested in the conversation with you of what you found as well. We can perhaps sort of, you know, sound off each other, learn from each other. 
Yeah. And maybe if that offers you a way out of feeling pressured to share anything personal about any patient of yours, I can be the one who kind of brings the themes that I'm noticing and you can comment um, from your lens on those themes. Yeah, we could do that. I mean, I've got a couple of people at the moment that I'm seeing that are transitioning and I can ask them if they'd mind um, subject to them really actually not binding. I'd rather not talk about their cases. I'd rather talk in general. But anyway, but let's yeah, let's ha- think about that. that. My mom says let's burn okay. that brick when we come to it. Okay. All right. So um so I'll share your article transgender medicalization in the show notes. Uh where else can people find you? Uh you can find me at the Rock Clinic in Brighton, which uh, is a community based psychotherapy and counseling service. Um with charitable status and about 140 therapists working in our two buildings, most of them on a part-time basis. But we offer people placements for their counseling and psychotherapy training. We offer them supervision and we offer a low-cost scheme to the general public. So you can find me that. Or the SAP in Hungary. Are you on any social media? Uh, Yeah, or you can find me on Twitter. I think I'm for at Bob Withers 52, which is a, um, yes, subtle giveaway of my vast age. And anyway, do you have a website? That's my date of birth. Uh, sorry. Go on. Do I have anywhere what? Do you have a website? Oh, a website. No, I don't. No. Okay. The, the Rock Clinic does, though. All right. Yeah, the okay. Rock Clinic's got a website. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, thank you for interviewing me. And thanks for your work. It's, uh, it's great that you're doing it. So it's really good. And hopefully we can um, help people think psychologically before they do something that they could end up regretting. Maybe we can help minimize the harm going forward at least. Best of luck with your work. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.